Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're, welcome to our grand round. Sorry, we had a 30 second delay. Hopefully you got your commercial. Uh, I think we, we had a commercial break is what I understand. So I'm just, just kidding, of course. Uh, this is a one of our special grand rounds is the honorary Schwartz lecture uh, that will be held by our, our radiology team. And uh, Dr. Doug Mood will introduce uh, Dr. Bao, who's gonna talk about advances in pediatric body MRI. Before I pass it on to Doug to make the uh, introductions, uh, there's something really nice to celebrate. And uh, I, I learned today that uh, our uh, downloads from Grand Rounds and Ask the Experts uh, hit 10,000 podcast downloads. And that's really remarkable. And it's a testament to our, our team, our CME team, uh, with Liz and Nicole and Anna Marie and Ken Spiegelman and everyone who's involved with getting these sessions to you that, you know, these have been incredibly popular. I mean, 10,000 podcast downloads. Uh, uh, so thank you, John Shriver, uh, and, and I think, thank you for all of you, Grand Round speakers. These have been terrific, and they will have another one of these that will be, I'm sure, will be downloaded multiple, multiple times. The other thing that everyone needs to know is that the, the sessions are now available. The, the Ask the Experts is now available in the intranet for those at Connecticut Children's as a quick link so that our non-clinical team members can take advantage as well. And those sessions are very specific about uh, COVID-19 uh, disease and pathogenesis, vaccines. And we always have a, a second speaker that will bring a topic that's related to COVID-19. So please join on Fridays. They're very popular. We get anywhere between 200 and 300 people uh, on a weekly basis uh, live, but it sounds like then it moves on to, to podcast. So, so John, you are somewhere, people are driving somewhere and listening to you. You've become quite famous. So uh, thank you for, for what you do. So now I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dr. Muth to introduce our speaker, Dr. Bao, and then we'll have questions at the end through the typical Q&A session. Doug, go ahead. Great. Um, thank you, Dr. Salazar. I, I'm proud to introduce our Schwartz Lecture Series speaker for 2021. Uh, and just you can go to the next slide. We've hosted an impressive list of pediatric radiologists to speak annually at Connecticut Children's. Um, this annual series is in honor of one of our former pediatric radiologist, Dr. Andrew N. Schwartz, who passed away in 1989. I didn't know Andy personally, but uh, from what I've heard, he was larger than life. And at, his, at the time of the first lecture that was presented, Dr. Ozanoff and Dr. Vine had the following to say about Dr. Schwartz, and I'm just going to read it to you. His character embodied the epitome of what every pediatric radiologist strives for, knowledgeable and skilled in children's diseases. He was always an advocate for equitable patient care. His insistence on minimizing radiation exposure by performing the most appropriate procedure rather than what was merely requested was well known. He was constantly aware of the emotional and psychological needs of the children and their parents, and he continually stressed this to the residents and technical staff. His wry sense of humor and calm demeanor helped all through the frustrations we often encounter in trying to help others. His memory is honored by an annual lectureship in the Department of Pediatrics and by all of us who think of him when we deal with young patients. So I think all of that holds true today. I'm going to change my background just to uh, celebrate MRI. And today, um, Dr. Bao is going to speak to us about advanced imaging. Dr. Bao is the director of body MRI at Children's Hospital uh, at Connecticut Children's. Her radiology residency was at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center, and then she spent two years honing her skills at Stanford University in California. 
Since joining us in 2017, Dr. Bao has been an incredible resource, particularly with body MRI. Advanced imaging is a priority at Connecticut Children's and we have invested in both 1.5 and three Tesla magnet um, technology and we really can generate incredible results for our patients. And uh, that crosses the spectrum of neurology, orthopedics, cardiac and body, and body imaging needs. So today, Dr. Bao is going to try and synthesize some of the advances we've had in body MRI imaging and share those with you today. And then at the end, we'll have time for questions and answers. And Dr. Bao and Dr. Chang as well are, are available as resources in the future should you need them. Thank you very much. Please welcome Dr. Bao. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for joining me. Um, I'm very honored to be asked to uh, speak on a topic that I'm actually quite fond of, which is uh, body MRI. So um, I'm going to be talking about some of the new techniques that we are incorporating in our practice uh, here in the Department of Radiology at Connecticut Children's. I have no conflicts of interest. So my goal of after the end of the study or the end of the presentation is for the attendee to be able to discuss the advantages and disadvantages of MR urography, uh, explain the basic physical principles of MRI hepatic iron quantification and to be able to identify the common indications for whole body MRI. Okay, <clears throat> so a little bit of uh, introduction about MRI uh, for pediatric imaging. Uh, no doubt we all know that it is an incredibly powerful tool. And for, I, I would say two main reasons. One, there is no ionization radiation, ionizing radiation involved. Uh, unlike um, some of the other modalities that we also use um, to great advantage, which include X-ray and CT. Uh, but as we all know, ionizing radiation can have the potential of increasing the risk of cancers and children uh, with their developing bodies can be especially radiosensitive. Uh, the next advantage of MRI and imaging is that it gives excellent soft tissue contrast. And that gives it um, great anatomic delineation. We're able to see a lot of small structures and soft tissue structures very clearly, um, as well as de detection of pathology and lesions. For example, I have an image, image here. Uh, this is a T1 weighted image of uh, the top portion of a femur. And you can see that the white kind of bright signal here, this is fat signal. And in the bone marrow, there's plenty of fat signal. But here we have this area of dark signal, uh, which unfortunately is a metastasis, which has replaced the bone marrow. And this wouldn't be picked up by x-ray or CT scan unless the bone has started to become destroyed. Um, but as it is just this very early lesion replacing the bone marrow, MRI can pick it up very well. 
Um, and then an MRI also has um, some unique uh, abilities to characterize tissue, such as fat, water, blood, uh, as well as other pathologic processes such as inflammation and ischemia. This is an example of what I was talking about um, in terms of uh, characterization of a certain type of tissue. And in this case, it's actually, it's actually blood. So this patient actually has a lesion that has hemorrhaged into it. So it's sort of a partially cystic lesion. You can see that there are little fronds of soft tissue coming from it. So on this T1 weighted image, the contents are actually bright in signal. And, um, and you can see here, I labeled this fat saturated because we've kind of saturated or nulled out the fat signal. And that's because on T1 weighted image, blood and fat can have a similar appearance with a bright signal. But when, when you null out the fat signal, this bright appearance can only be, well, not only be blood, but it's most likely blood. And on the same, uh, same tissues, when you use a T2 weighted image, um, again, the fat is nulled out. You can see this curious fluid fluid level, which is a hematocrit effect. So you can see these are sort of the heavier cellular, cellular elements of blood kind of layering dependently. And so that's very, very characteristic of hemorrhage. So this is one of the ways that we can use MRI to really become, you know, not only being sensitive in our examinations, but also achieve a higher degree of specificity in um, a, a lot of cases. It makes it a very good problem solving tool. So of course we have disadvantages that are also well known with MRI. Um, and basically speed and spatial resolution are, are, two, are, are two of the main disadvantages. Um, and you know, later on in the talk, I'm gonna be talking about how we've um, developed new advances to compensate for these inherent limitations. So speed, uh, twofold. One, it just takes sort of a long time to make these images and that therefore it's quite prone to, you know, motion distortion and degradation. For example, in this image here, you can see all the sort of fine anatomic detail is blurred from just respiratory motion artifact. This is especially bad um, in the chest where you have cardiac motion artifact um, and also looking at the bowel, but we also have ways to compensate for that. Um, and the other component of the speed is that because the, um, the, the images take a long time to acquire. And the other thing is we also have to have different sets of images with different qualities and uh, image in three different planes, oftentimes um, the studies take a long time. So for example, when you do a CT scan um, of the chest cavity and pelvis, you can do that scan in a matter of minutes. Um, but if you try to cover the same anatomy in an MRI, um, it could take more than an hour, depending on what sequences you choose. So that's the, the order of magnitude uh, when you compare MRI and CT scan, which arguably both give you, you know, same similar cross-sectional imaging. So the other disadvantage is spatial resolution. So at kind of a traditional core MRI sequence, the slice thicknesses um, are typically five millimeters 
and um, thinner, you can get down to three millimeters. Um, and that's no, no comparison to x-ray or ultrasound, for example, um, where you can look at structures, you know, interrogate structures that are two millimeters, you know, in size, so. Um, another thing is each MRI sequence, which is the set of data that you get from one acquisition, um, I would say that they're less versatile than say, for example, CT scan. So this is an example that I thought was very interesting. Um, these are both reformatted images, meaning the scan is actually acquired in the axial plane. So from kind of the chest down in transverse. Um, but with a CT scan, that data set can be reformatted into any arbitrary plane. In this case, I have a coronal image that has been reformatted. But if you take the same kind of scan in an MRI sequence, you can't just reformat it, uh, traditionally speaking, because what you get is these sort of staircase artifacts where the slabs kind of, um, you know, they don't completely overlap to form a smooth image. Um, we do have sequences actually that do allow you to reformat into any planes and I'll show you later, but traditionally speaking, um, the MRI sequence is not as versatile because it is not, um, it doesn't uh, give you this isotropic uh, data set like a CT scan could. And just to show you that reformat was actually from a chest, abdomen, pelvis acquisition. So I would say CT has advantages in terms of versatility and speed. Okay, so after all of that, why are we talking about this? Um, well, I mean, we still use a lot of the fundamental sequences from the early days uh, of MRI that have been developed, but there are actually a lot of advances that have been made. And these are three areas that actually I'm going to talk about um, using the the, um, the techniques that um, I'm going to go over. So one, in terms of hardware, we've, we've advanced. We've gone from you know, 0.3 Tesla field strength to a three Tesla field strength magnet. Um, and that just, that kind of talks about, that's the, the strength of the magnet and how um, uh, Tesla is a measurement, I guess, of the magnetic field. And with a higher field strength, uh, you can achieve better signal to noise ratios and also achieve faster scans, uh, which is very important for um, children's imaging and, and any clinical imaging, frankly. Um, and I'm gonna touch a bit about coil and table function because an MRI scanner has a lot of different parts, uh, which people don't actually realize, but this is an image where you have this kind of whole body array which covers the head, chest, abdomen, and lower extremities. And um, this is actually quite an advancement compared to a traditional coil design, which is a single, single structure that covers one body part, for example, the knee or the head, you know, for brain MRI. And this, um, you know, the advancement in coil design really has allowed for um, imaging of larger field of view and um, also preserving signal to noise ratio. And that can also allow for faster imaging with parallel imaging. And that kind of plays, that becomes key in terms of whole body uh, MRI, as I will talk about later. Table function is another thing where now they have these kind of automated sliding tables, which are also important for when we want to image large 
large uh, field of view. Um, okay, so talking about sequences, which is another part of how we make an image, um, we have basically made sequences uh, to increase the speed, um, both in how fast they can scan and also how little you can scan to actually reconstruct um, a kind of a very clinically um, diagnostic image. Um, we also are able to increase our spatial resolution as well. And lastly, I'm gonna talk about uh, what um, work has been done to, to use the ability of MRI to characterize tissues um, and make it into a quantitative evaluation um, and then allowing for development of non-invasive biomarkers um, to be a potential alternative to biopsies. So this is kind of a fun slide that I, I decided to put together because it really shows the proliferation of all the different MRI sequences and it can become sort of award salad or you know all these fun acronyms. And so just to kind of orient everybody, SpinEcho really was sort of the first basic sequence that, um, that this technology developed around, uh, which basically is the spin is alluding to the motion of proton um, atoms in the tissues within the body. And the echo is essentially the signal um, that comes back from the atom when you manipulate it using a magnetic field. And so from spin echo, um, you're getting kind of these sequences, haste and blade, um, cube space and vista, some of them are acronyms and um, you can kind of tell by the name of cube is that this is a three-dimensional sequence that can give you very high resolution images. Um, I will talk about, uh, we'll have examples of, of this um, specific sequence. Um, and these are just, you know, names assigned by the manufacturers. Gradient echo is a, also a very, very important technique. It's just a different way of creating a signal um, using the different magnetic gradients. And the advantage of this is that it's actually very fast and it, it is a basis for a lot of the fast imaging. For example, over here, we have tricks and twists, which are time resolved uh, sequences for angiographic studies. And, um, and then another thing with gradient echo is that um, this is the basis for um, quantification of fat and iron that I'll be talking about. Okay, so talking about MR urography. So traditionally, um, imaging of the urinary tract is done with these modalities, um, ultrasound, and we're still doing this. Um, you know, this is kind of a fundamental way of uh, urinary tract imaging. Um, but ultrasound, we can get very good detail of the renal morphology. For example, here we have a sagittal view of the kidney, which has actually looks like it's a duplicated collecting system. And there is hydronephrosis, uh, both in the upper and lower moieties, um, higher, larger on the, um, in the upper portion of the kidney. And um, we can also get the renal function and information about drainage or obstruction using nuclear medicine studies. And you can get ref you know, information about whether there's vesicle ureteral reflux using VCUG. 
Um, or this is sort of not a great image, but this is an image of a contrast enhanced ultrasound that we've also started doing with more frequency in our department. But why are we doing MR urography? So this is a high resolution uh, morphologic evaluation of the urinary tract. As you can see, this is an example image, but it also combines the ability to give this dynamic functional analysis. Uh, so it's a really powerful too, tool and so it's sort of like a one-stop shop is what I like to call it, um, where you can get the morphology and function. Unfortunately, we can't use this for reflux. Um, and mainly we've been using it for, um, you know, it's a question of obstruction, um, also using it for congenital anomalies and um, especially when we're talking about things like ectopic ureter, which are difficult to assess with ultrasound. Okay, so in terms of the advantages, um, again, we're not dealing with any radiation. Um, it is very, very um, powerful in terms of being able to comp characterize complex anatomy. Um, and I said before, one-stop shop with both combination of morphology and functional analysis. And plus, this is one of the uh, kind of main feedbacks I've received from our nephrology and urology colleagues is that the results are intuitive. You can see what's abnormal. You can see how the kidney is draining. And that actually facilitates the discussion between the, uh, the provider and the family in terms of supporting their clinical decision-making. So how we do an MRU is actually, I'm doing, I'm kind of taking you through this process because it's actually a fairly complicated uh, procedure, which is one of the disadvantages. So it takes a fair amount of patient preparation. They come, they come to the department and we have to give them an IV and a Foley catheter, which is not typical for MRI studies. And then there's a period of IV hydration. They get a diuretic. This is to ensure that we have a good flow of urine. Um, and then more often than not, our patients do require sedation because remember this is an MRI test and it takes a long time and we are very vulnerable to motion. So then we're in the scanner, we actually have a fairly straightforward um, image acquisition. As you can see here, we have the anatomic sequences, including a high resolution uh, sequence of the urinary tract. And then we do this dynamic sequence where we continuously acquire series um, as we infuse gadolinium contrast. And that allows us to track the contrast uh, as it infuses into the kidneys and gets excreted into the collecting system. And so lastly, after all that is done, uh, we actually have to post-process this data in a, in a separate software system. Uh, we segment out the you know, relevant anatomy and then we can get some data in terms of um, the renal volume, split renal function, uh, much like a nuclear medicine scan in that regard, uh, as well as data in terms of how the kidney is draining. So the disadvantages, again, to summarize, um, it's a complex procedure. And sedation, unfortunately, is needed more frequently um, when compared to other modalities. For example, with an ultrasound, you, I, I don't see you ever need really to have sedation um, for doing an ultrasound study. And for nuclear medicine, you rarely need sedation as well. But we've we also have a sort of alternate technique, which is called feed and swallow. Swaddle for, for very young infants, like three months and younger, where um, you basically induce 
a food coma in the, in the young babies and kind of bundle them up uh, and image while they're asleep. Um, but as you can see, infants will wake up and, uh, and that um, technique is definitely less reliable. Um, and then other things that I haven't mentioned and it's sort of um, almost a general disadvantage with um, MRI exams is the cost and just this, this um, you know, procedure is not widely available at all imaging centers. Okay, so hopefully I have, you know, I can show you actually how nice uh, MRU is in terms of being able to um, provide clinically relevant information. So I have uh, this case, which is EPJ obstruction. We have two different patients. So you can see here, these are examples of, um, of the high resolution um, 3D sequences that I talked about, where you can see there's actually really, really great delineation of the detail, you can see that. Um, and these are actually called maximum intensity projection images or MIPS, where they take the whole um, imaging stack and just kind of project it onto this um, sort of volumetric image. Um, so you can see that here in the right kidney and in this patient in the left kidney, there's significant dilation of the uh, intrarenal um, collecting system with an extra renal pelvis and this abrupt transition here um, at the EPJ. And in fact, you don't see um, any fluid uh, in the ureter in this patient. And what we're seeing is the bright signal is a fluid or urine um, in the collecting system. And here, this structure, you can actually see that's a CSF. And down here, we have fluid in the bladder as well. Okay, so this, yep. So here we have the so I love this. I hope you can kind of appreciate it. But um, on oops, on this side, that um, so there is a little excretion. Wait for it the urine immediately drains. Whereas in this patient, um, you can see that not only does the collecting system not fill with urine and the, ur the urine never comes down into the ureter, or the excreted contrast in the urine, I should say. Um, it also has a delayed excretion when compared to the right kidney, which is normal. So you can see here, we're just getting a little bit of pooling of excreted contrast in the collecting system. Whereas in this kidney already, we have good drainage um, down into the ureter. And so this is a high-grade obstruction, whereas in the patient on the left-hand side, um, there is a morphology of a EPJ obstruction, no doubt, and there is a relative obstruction because of the hydronephrosis, but um, what we don't have is a high-grade obstruction. Um, I'll also point out to you that um, the renal parenchyma, even though it's thin from the stretching, there's actually a fairly normal sort of enhancement pattern and there aren't any signal changes. So with a patient with a high-grade UPJ obstruction, we're actually able to generate some um, numbers. Um, here's an enhancement plot. And you can see that this uh, green um, is the left kidney, which is enhancing to a lesser degree than the right kidney. And, um, and then so you can get a split renal function, which is relatively symmetric. And so that um, supports 
you know, the decision to do a pyeloplasty. And here you can see on the post-operative uh, ultrasound that we've decompressed the collecting system. And here's a nice renal parenchyma that we've um, been able to recover. And so this is an example of a patient with complex ureteroceles um, in the bladder. Let me just move my screen here. Um, down here, and you can see that there's severe hydronephrosis on both sides and the left kidney is actually um, has cystic dysplasia. Um, using the high resolution images, you're actually able to reformat these into these kind of oblique planes and be able to identify the, um, describe sort of the, the relationship of the distal ureters with these big ureter seals within the bladder. This is a case of a patient who has a duplex kidney and um, ectopic ureters. So this is just to show you how overwhelming the anatomy can be if you're trying to image with ultrasound. Here is the duplication in the kidneys. Um, here you can see the upper and lower renal pelvis. This is an extremely dilated um, hydronephrotic upper uh, pole up moiety collecting system. And you can see that the upper poles actually insert ectopically. So this is a fully catheter in the bladder. This is the um, insertion onto the bladder neck and the left upper actually inserts onto the seminal vesicle, which is extremely dilated. So on this image, you can see, we can track the different functions of the, of the, the moieties. So the left lower starts first, and then you have the right lower coming down. Those are not ectopic. And then this right upper is ectopic, but it's, it does excrete. But you can see that this left upper, uh, not only does it not excrete because it's completely obstructed, there's also abnormal enhancement of the renal parenchyma here, um, suggesting that there's a higher degree of functional impairment and looks like maybe there's also a little bit of uh, scarring. <clears throat> So, um, and I think this case is actually a great example of um, the kind of the great clinical information that you can get um, with NMRU, um, specifically because of its ability to combine the um, capabilities of um, really detailed morphologic evaluation and functional um, information. Okay, so to switch gears a little bit, I'm gonna just talk about multi-parametric liver exam. Okay, so, um, so, so as we're talking about uh, leveraging the ability of MRI to characterize tissue, um, we're gonna talk about measuring iron, fat, and fibrosis within the liver. And um, what we're measuring in uh, iron quantification is the um, R2 star or T2 star. And in fat, we're using this uh, measurement called proton density fat fraction. And in liver for fibrosis, we're actually looking at the stiffness um, with elastography. And what we uh, predominantly uh, use this for two major patient populations, um, patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, and transfusional hemosiderosis in patients with sickle cell anemia or thalassemias. Um, and then both of uh, both iron overload and fatty liver disease um, are chronic, um, you know, chronic uh, conditions that can lead to liver inflammation, damage, and ultimately development of fibrosis, 
which is very important to be able to identify because that could lead to end-stage liver disease, um, cirrhosis, and hepatic, um, hepatocellular carcinoma. This is just kind of an example from the literature of what you can do with the, these different uh, ways of um, quantification in the liver. Okay, so a little, um, a little bit about multiparametric liver exam, which um, so we have developed um, some non-invasive MRI biomarkers in clinically useful ranges. And these have to be reproducible across different scanner types. And um, you can assess the whole organ, which limits uh, you know, sampling error, um, which can be uh, seen in biopsy, for, some, for example. And um, a, a lot of times the patients have to have repeat uh, studies. Um, so because of the you know, lack of radiation, these are uh, great tools for management and monitoring of iron overload or fatty liver disease, and hopefully be able to avoid repeat biopsies. Okay, so this is just a graphic to show the different types, um, two broad categories of uh, iron overload, which is hemochromatosis and transfusional hemosiderosis. We predominantly see patients with transfusional hemosiderosis. And this is just a graphic showing a theoretical distribution of um, iron um, in these um, clinical entities. So this is normal. And in hemochromatosis, it's the increased oral absorption of uh, iron and it's predominantly stored within the liver um, and a little bit in the pancreas as well, um, also in the myocardium. In hemosiderosis, where uh, related to multiple transfusions, um, the liver is predominantly distributed in the reticular endothelial system, which is comprises of the liver, spleen, bone marrow, and also lymph nodes. And um, a special case in sickle cell anemia, you can also get iron deposition in the renal cortices because of the intravascular hemolysis. Okay, so now I'm gonna talk about uh, a little bit of physics because it's not an MRI talk without a little bit of physics. Um, so this is not a real magnet. It's a tabletop model of an MRI magnet, but it kind of does the trick. And, um, and this is the kind of the graphic representation of the magnet. Um, so the magnet is a, is a large coil, like kind of a superconducting coil of wires. And it creates this magnetic field, which is shown here in this box. And ideally, um, you have all these straight lines showing a homogeneous magnetic field. But when there is iron present in the body uh, for, in the form of ferritin or hemosiderin, typically, um, because of the paramagnetic effects of iron, which means it is um, sensitive to magnetic um, poles, um, it actually distorts the field, as you can see here. So that actually results in darkening of the MRI image of that tissue. That's what we see. And the reason of the darkening of the image is the signal decays. So this is a representation of how the signal, um, once we have this kind of transverse magnetization, um, and it kind of, so this is a representation of all the kind of protons in, in the body and it spins around and then it kind of starts spinning out, out all out of phase and the protons are kind of just going in their random, uh, random directions. And that's, that's um, basically a representation of how the signal will decay. And that happens normally in a tissue and that's the T2 time. That's the, the T2 means it's the time for the signal to decay. 
But when there is iron in the field, the inhomogeneities cause the T2 to shorten. So the time that it takes for the signal to decay becomes shorter and shorter. So, so that's why the image gets darker and darker. And the T2 star is essentially this shortened observed T2 time that you can see here. Um, so what we do is we can take several images, for example, here, um, where we have um, in real life a patient, different patients with iron overload. And you can see that as the time that it we put onto the scan, these time parameters called echo times get longer, the liver gets darker. And also this is especially magnified uh, in terms with sev more severe iron overload. So we take these separate images and we can model the decay and generate a curve like this. And from this uh, curve, we can see this is time over signal. You can actually calculate the rate of decay, which is R2 star. It's just the inverse of T2 star, which is the time. And we have shown that uh, R2 star and R2 in fact, um, correlate linearly with um, the degree of iron overload in the liver based on biopsy samples. And so for example, um, we have a case that we performed at CCMC of a patient who has um, sickle cell disease and you can see the distribution of iron in the reticular endothelial system and also in the renal cortices. And when we do the uh, this multi-echo uh, gradient echo sequence, um, we're basically looking at the same tissue uh, with longer and longer time periods. And you can see that um, the signal is getting lost. It's decaying because the iron is causing the field inhomogeneities. And so when we calculate this out, the estimated uh, T2 star of the liver is about 2.3 milliseconds. And that correlates, so just, Basically, that's the inverse of the R2 star, which linearly, don't forget, correlates with the level of iron in the liver. And we're getting 14.3 milligrams per uh, gram of dry liver. And that's actually fairly severe. Um, so again, when I talked about um, iron and fat, um, fat fraction, um, the endpoint really is liver fibrosis. And um, we can measure that actually with MRI elastography. I'm not gonna kind of go over too much of the physics, but just to show you what we do is there is this paddle fixed to the right upper quadrant and it actually makes waves and sends waves propagating into the liver at a fixed frequency. Um, so, so you can see with this video here, that's how the lives go through and they're called shear waves which are kind of transverse waves that kind of push and cause strain in the tissue. And the wave propagation, uh, the wave speed can actually be calculated by an MRI and converted to a measurement of stiffness. Um, this over here, this color elastogram is a representation of um, sort of a gestalt view, if you will, of um, if the liver has increased stiffness or not. 
Um, as you can see with the color scale, when there's elevated stiffness, um, it's mostly kind of reds and oranges. And then when um, the liver has normal elasticity and not increased stiffness, uh, it's mostly kind of purples and blues and greens. So in this region, I know this is not very anatomic, but what you're seeing is mostly blues and purples. And when you measure the appropriate regions, you get a mean liver stiffness of about 2.7 kilopascals is our um, the measurement. It's actually a measurement of pressure. And that's consistent with uh, normal or inflammation. So this patient, even though um, they do not have um, significant fibrosis in the liver, uh, you can see on this dual echo image actually that um, the liver loses a lot of signal on the out of phase image. And that's because of my microscopic fat uh, content in the liver. So they have um, a fair degree of hepatic steatosis but no significant fibrosis. Okay, so when you put all these techniques together, you sort of get this, um, you can kind of get different parameters um, in a patient. And this is kind of a nice figure from the literature showing what kind of, um, you know, uh, parameters you can get, for example, in hemochromatosis. Um, this patient has, um, you can get iron um, overload right here where you have shortening of the T2 star. Um, in steat uh, hepatic steatosis, what we have is elevation in the fat fraction. And this is just obtained um, because of the ability of MRI to separate water signal from fat signal. So you can get the fraction of fat signal um, from this volume of tissue. And then in a patient with actually uh, steatohepatitis, um, you're getting increased um, fibrosis um, of the tissue. So it's actually very relevant um, you know, in, in our current um, populations. Um, obesity and metabolic syndrome um, are really an epidemic. And, um, and this is actually quite relevant in both pediatric and um, adult populations. And this is just um, a sort of proposed clinical algorithm uh, in the same paper that shows how we can monitor patients who are at risk of um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, so these um, non-invasive biomarkers um, have good correlation with biopsy. And um, so, you know, further developments really should um, allow refinement of sensitivity and specificity, um, and then ultimately to be um, useful in evaluation of the prognostic potential for these, um, for these tests. Okay, so uh, lastly, in the few moments that I have, I'm just gonna talk about whole body MRI. And so I've talked about a lot about, you know, sequences and kind of the way that we've designed these um, studies. Um, whole body MRI is sort of a whole different way to scan a patient from the top of the head to the toes. And this is different from a traditional MRI exam where you pick a body part, for example, the brain, and there's a special coil that goes over the head and you do very, very detailed imaging of the brain with different sequences and different, uh, different uh, tissue planes or different planes, I should say. And um, the patient is sort of motionless on the MRI table and it takes about you know, 45 minutes is reasonable for a, brain, a full brain MRI. Um, but we can't do that to image the whole body, for example, because for one, you need to be able to image the entire 
the entire body and we can only get signal when there's a coil. So if you remember to the beginning of my talk, I showed this, uh, this patient covered by really a gigantic array of coils. Um, and that development is actually key in being able to do whole body MRI. So uh, what we do is um, really kind of fast sequences that take a short amount of time and we have the patient covered in this multi-channel coils um, and the MRI table will slide through the, um, uh, through the bore of the magnet. So the patient uh, does not have to be repositioned and the coils don't have to be repositioned. And they just kind of go through the different stations depending on how tall the patient is. And we're able to get these separate images that get stitched together. So, this is an example of a recent um, whole body MRI study that we did. Um, technically, this is actually a uh, study from the vertex through the pelvis, and we haven't, we did not do the, um, the lower extremities, but you can see that there is actually a really, really good deal of tissue contrast. You can see there's some stuff in the spine, which I'll show later. Um, and very good fat saturation and anatomic detail for what we're able to image. Um, I like this figure because it talks about, you know, what we can use uh, whole body MRI for. We have this technique. Well, it's really great for the assessment of any disease process that goes across organ systems or body parts. Um, very immediately coming to mind um, is oncologic um, you know, indications. And that's actually the largest proportion um, of all the scans. So about, I think like 35 or 39% of their scans. And then the rest is non-oncologic. Um, and so in terms of on oncologic indications, um, it's especially useful for cancer predisposition syndromes, which I've kind of highlighted here. Um, and that's because um, of the idea of being able to screen these patients uh, to detect early lesions uh, before they've come, become metastas you know, metastasized and hopefully to be able to identify the lesions um, when they're curative. Um, but you can see you can also use um, whole body MRI as staging or for metastatic uh, workup and surveillance. Um, coming to the non-oncologic indications, it's actually quite varied. Um, I've circled uh, chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis or CROMO. Um, that is one of the indications that we've encountered a few times here at CCMC. And um, really any kind of systemic uh, musculoskeletal process, um, be it you know, inflammatory process or you know, in terms of um, multifocal um, osteochondromas, you know, um, whole body MRI can, can uh, be useful for that. And also here, um, you know, they've, lifted, they've listed non-accidental injuries um, that they've tried to um, use whole body MRI, but that has not actually achieved um, the same level of sensitivity as our traditional methods of skeletal survey and so forth. Um, also, another indication that is non, not on here is the imaging of um, extensive, you know, lymphatic or vascular malformations, and those can be quite dis disfiguring to a patient, and they can be, they're known to be transpatial and can be really extensive, and so um, whole body MRI actually can become a very useful tool for that. 
So this is the example of a, a patient that we um, scan here at CCMC um, <clears throat> who is 19 but has developmental delay and was having um, some, some kind of pains and there was a clinical suspicion for chromo. So when we imaged, uh, we actually found several areas of bone marrow signal abnormality, for example, in the spine, in the pelvis, um, and then he also had um, signal um, uh, abnormalities in bone marrow edema in the rib. Um, it didn't show very well, so I didn't include it, but um, just uh, suffice to say that he had multifocal lesions uh, in his body, which supported the diagnosis of chromo. Um, this is another case. It's actually not technically uh, done as a whole body, but because the infant was so small, this was a, a premature infant with bacteremia and they were suspecting uh, septic joint. Um, it was just easy to cover the patient in a, in a complete, you know, in a single shot because the patient is so small, but you can see that there are these little collections in the thighs and here I ran a diffusion weighted sequence, which actually really increased the conspicuity of these lesions. And those are little abscesses. And it turned out that this baby had abscesses in the chest and pelvis and joints. So again, this is just an example of what you can um, use whole body MRI for in terms of being able to image multiple anatomic locations. And then these are some of the cases from the literature um, for patients who have cancer predisposition syndromes and metastatic workup. For example, here, this I think this patient is a three-year-old um, who has Lee-Fraumeni Lee syndrome, which can predispose to development of um, you know, osteosarcomas and soft tissue sarcomas, brain tumors. And then here, um, there is an adrenal cortical carcinoma. And in this patient um, who has hereditary uh, retinoblastoma, you can see that there's just unfortunately um, lots of um, osseous metastases everywhere. So um, another um, kind of note of um, oncologic imaging is that um, whole body MRI can be a great screening tool for osteonecrosis, which, you know, leukemia, lymphoma patients, leukemia patients can get um, <clears throat> uh, and often affecting multiple joints. Um, so, you know, Still, this is, a, this is a fairly new technique that is in development. So here are some of its challenges. Um, mainly, currently we don't have an optimized standardized protocol that kind of everybody is doing. Um, and so that's still in research. And also the role of whole body MRI in oncologic screening. And of course, um, you know, here especially, we're still refining our techniques um, and cost is another issue. Um, but you can see that there's already kind of a lot of different directions this can go um, with the technique, um, including vascular imaging, um, as well as PET MRI. Okay, so um, this is the end of my talk. And um, here I've sort of reiterated my um, original um, objectives and hopefully um, I was able to kind of convey this information. Um, to conclude, I thought this was kind of an interesting um, image. Uh, this is like a poster from 1899 I found online of this magician who has kind of all this stuff <laughs> happening here, um, which is kind of how I 
you know, think of MRI, I mean, it's not magic, but, you know, it's no less dazzling than a really, really neat <laughs> trick. Um, there's a lot going on here. And that's sometimes um, uh, what we can see in the field of um, advances in uh, MRI. Okay, so these are my references. And um, thank you for your attention. Um, here's my contact info for any questions. Thank you very much for a truly an outstanding presentation. I think Dr. Schwartz would be very proud of, of the work that, that you have done and the work that has been done at Connecticut Children's through this, you know, truly uh, just incredible images that, and what we can do now with, with uh, imaging and, and it, without radiation, which is really remarkable. Um, so kudos to you and the entire MRI team at Connecticut Children's. There are a couple of questions that have come up. Uh, the first one is, uh, are we looking at rapid AI supplemented MRI? I assume that's artificial intelligence. I think that's what that is. Uh, so can you comment on that? Um, I think it's automated images um, that potentially oh, okay. have the so I sure what the AI was, okay. In, in like stroke applications. And I do know that we are in the process of um, refining our stroke protocol pathway with neurology, neurosurgery, and, and neuroradiology. So, you know, I'm sure they're looking at all of these things. And, and you know, we are also um, um, looking at segmentation software to look at um, um, different areas of the brain and, and neonates, et cetera. So there's a lot of things in the pipeline that we're exploring. Uh, um, you know, I don't have the specific answer to that, that specific vendor, but, you know, certainly I'll pass that along to my neuroradiology colleagues. Okay, great. Uh, there is a broad question here, and then this may take another grand round. So can you explain a PET scan? Oh, a PET scan. <laughs> um, <laughs> a PET scan is a completely different um, modality. It is a very powerful tool in nuclear medicine, and it's, um, it's basically metabolic imaging um, where the, there is a radioactive tracer that is connected to glucose. And the glucose is taken up by any tissue that's highly metabolic. So that translates into uh, malignancies, um, which are you know, high, highly metabolic tissues, but you can also see that in inflammation, for example. And, um, and the, so the tissue takes up that and you um, image the patient and the radioactive substances will cause a signal um, and that, um, that's how you're able to identify um, areas of, um, for example, metastatic disease uh, within a body or characterize a lesion to see if this is concerning for uh, malignancy um, and so forth. Um, the way that we do PET scan is that um, we have to correlate it with, a, and so the PET scan itself is not an, at, an atomic. So what you see are basically um, kind of areas of increased activity from the radioactivity in the tissues. Um, and then, but we correlate, we're able to fuse that image with a CT, for example, or, um, you know, you can actually do that with a whole body MRI scan and that gives you the anatomic correlation for the uh, areas of increased activity that you can see. And so that gives you a better, um, I guess, specificity and anatomic depiction of your lesion. Thank you uh, for that quick uh, response. Well, maybe another grand rounds coming up. Uh, a question <laughs> from uh, Dr. Lau. Uh, genetic abnormalities are increasingly used in oncologic workup 
but it requires tissue biopsy via invasive procedures. Any advances in MRI imaging or spectroscopy to convert genetic testing into image-based evaluation? <laughs> well, so that's a really interesting question, and um, <clears throat> I didn't go much into it, but in fact, um, it's, it's one of the... Um, Sort of difficulties with whole body MRI um, in its role um, of uh, being able to screen for um, um, for you know cancer screening basically because while it's very very sensitive it can pick up a lot of lesions um, we're learning more and more um, that we can but you know there are just a lot of sort of benign findings that you can pick up that don't necessarily lead to anything. And um, so one criticism of whole body MRI is that it can lead to a lot of patient anxiety and in fact, sometimes increase um, the degree of um, sort of invasive biopsies when we pick up these kind of like nothings, you know, little signal abnormalities in the, in the bone marrow that turn out to be nothing. Um, so one part um, is now I don't know, uh, just in terms of MRI, there's not necessarily um, well, for, for bone marrow imaging, actually, um, there, there is um, something that you can do with these kind of like nano uh, iron particles. Um, there, there are techniques uh, researching, for example, um, where uh, so iron, as we talked about, gets distributed in the reticulous endothelial system and actually gets um, you know, distributed throughout the bone marrow. And one way actually to be able to differentiate, you know, normal bone marrow or red marrow, for example, in a child versus a neoplasm um, or a marrow replacing lesion in the, um, in the bone marrow is um, by uh, having the entire bone marrow uptake. So normal bone marrow is gonna take up the iron and become dark and the pathology um, is going to be highlighted and become bright. So it's not exactly molecular imaging in that sense, um, but it is a way of suppressing the normal tissue to be able to tell what's a malignant tissue. Um, but going back um, to cancer screening, um, I think one of the things is to better understand, to have the good clinical knowledge of what sort of um, lesions that you are expecting um, to, um, that I guess that people, kids who have cancer predisposition syndromes can develop and then using that um, to refine sort of your specificity in terms of, um, you know, the, the incidental findings that you pick up on a whole body scan. So I don't know if that really answers the question, but these are, these are some of the things that we do definitely think about um, when we do these imaging studies. That's great. And then the last question are, are, uh, from Dr. Ratson, are these techniques useful in heterotary heter, heter, okay. po polycystic kidney disease? Um, <clears throat> well, um, are we talking about in terms of like um, renal function issues? Are we talking about picking up, you know, um, picking up um, like occult neoplasms in polycystic kidneys. I guess both is possibly true. I mean, I think there is a role. Um, if patient has impaired renal function, we can get a lot of great uh, tissue contrast without the need of, um, without the need of, you know, additional intravenous contrast. Um, and in fact, um, you know, we also have advances in, um, MRI contrast development. So the contrast that we use are actually is actually fairly safe for any level of renal function. So 
So that's also good to know. And also in terms of being able to identify um, you know, occult neoplasms in polycystic kidney disease. Um, I would say, yeah, I think MRI probably has, could have a little bit more or some sensitivity and maybe specificity as well. Um, and also if you need to, um, <clears throat> also the ability of the MRI to image the whole organ, right? And you know that, you know, you're seeing the entire thing, you're not missing any parts of it. Um, and with repeat exams, there's no radiation involved. So those are all some of the ways that that can help. Great, thank you. Uh, so again, uh, thank you very much for an outstanding round. rounds. I'm gonna pass it on to Dr. Muth to close it and then we, we will continue on Friday with the Ask the Experts. And Doug? Thank you, Shan Shan. That was really tremendous. It's hard to cover all of body MRI in one hour and you did a, a remarkable job of introducing some you know, novel things that are happening, but you know, that's not to diminish all of the bread and you know, the more standard things that we see every day to day and how this new technology that you see um, behind, behind me is you, you know, providing that information um, across the spectrum. Um, you know, we're doing rapid MRI of the brain uh, for, for abusive head trauma, stroke protocols. We're doing some really great cardiac stuff with Olga Salazar. So, you know, and then I just think it's, it's just awesome that we have this, this equipment and opportunity to provide our patients. And I think you did a really nice job of showing some of those advanced techniques. And uh, I'm really happy you, you gave the lecture today and, and Andy Schwartz would be proud. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Take care.